Hello, hello, and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is a podcast where we dish on all things food with your favorite chefs, food influencers, and Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a James Beard award-winning chef with us to share his take on Afro-Asian cuisine and why he wants to become the food world's Michael Jordan. He is a chef, cookbook author, restaurateur, and entrepreneur. It's J.J. Johnson. JJ, welcome to the podcast. You probably don't remember this, but we actually met in 2019 when I was hosting a show at the U.S. Open. And the main thing I remember is you bringing some delicious rice bowls to our set. So it is so great to reconnect here. How are you? I'm great. I saw your name when I got the email and I was like, yeah, I know her from (laughs) somewhere. From somewhere. Sounds familiar. Well, speaking of sports, I kind of want to kick off this convo with something you said in an interview a few years ago. Tell me why you aspire to become the food world's Michael Jordan. Oh, wow. So crazy. I brought my kids to their first basketball game last night, which was a Nick game. And it was just impeccable to see like my son, like so into the game and my daughter, like chanting defense the whole time. (laughs) And it's, I think it's, it's inspiring to see what athletes are able to do to young kids, make them dream really big. I think now with athletes on and off the court. And I think the, the greatest thing that Michael Jordan has done and why you see LeBron now is like Jordan showed you that you could dream big and you can do a lot more than just play basketball for him. He was a multi athlete for him. He was an entrepreneur he he impacted folks. So, you know, back then when I said that, I, I looked at myself as like somebody that would be in an arena, right? Which the culinary world's an arena and be around for a really long time. And hopefully my name would never expire in the streets of the culinary world. Like Jordan's name would never expire because of his sneakers mm-hmm. and his impact is real. He's intense. He's, he's always going to bring his A game regardless of what he's doing. It doesn't matter if it's the old generation or the new generation. They know they got to bring their A game every time, regardless how old Jordan is or what he might be doing. Yeah, no, I think that's really well said. So it's not just about being like, you know, goat status, greatest of all time. It's more about, you know, kind of helping others, you know, realize their their dreams as well. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think that, I mean, every young, every kid, Kobe, LeBron, I mean, Tiger, right? These guys expire, inspired to be Jordan. Even what's her name in the WNBA? I came, um, Tarasi, like yeah, these Diana people Tarasi. inspired to be Jordan. And it was, the, and, and I, I think, yes, he, he was a goat on the floor, but the direct impact he had or has allowed to do that. And when I look at myself in the culinary world, I have this direct impact uh, on the food scene of the past and the present. I have this like direct impact on communities. And now if I was to say, if you look like at this direct correlation of athlete like me and LeBron are the same age. He makes more, way more money than I do. <laughs> but than most people, you know, I would say. <laughs> yeah, but the way he thinks, right? He's like he's a community guy. He's thinking about impacting the youth. I'm a community guy. I'm thinking about impacting the youth. He's bringing it every day, even if he's been in the game for 20 years, right? I'm bringing it every day, regardless of where I go, who I'm playing against, or who I'm cooking against. <laughs> and for him, he's thinking about the end of his, the next part of his career. Right. And I'm thinking like, yo, I just really got started. <laughs> well, I love that. And let's let's talk about getting started. Let's go all the way back, because as I understand it, you started cooking when you were just four years old. So how does one reach the countertops before kindergarten? 
I stepped on a milk crate in my grandmother's kitchen <laughs> and she Love made that. me believe that I was cooking, that I was peeling uh, carrots and onions and celery or whatever she would throw my potatoes, whatever she would throw my way. And the way it happened was, you know, my, my parents are working class folks. My mom was a first grade teacher at that time. She would drive to work. My dad would commute to New York City two hours a day, which I still think he's, when I think about is nuts. And my grandparents lived right around the corner from where we lived in Pennsylvania. And I would get dropped off at their house. And my grandmother was, that's what she did. She cooked all day, right? She would make her own chicken stock. She would get dinner ready. The house would smell amazing. There was always loud music playing. And I would just gravitate to her in the kitchen. And it was just always fun. I'm like, well, if, it, if it's this fun, then I want to do this, you know? <laughs> and I never, like, looking back, my grandmother definitely injected DNA into my soul uh, when I talk about the story, I can literally see the the long table every time. I can see my uncle, Aunt Lisa, Uncle Donald, my great, great aunt. You know, the table was always filled with, you know, 10 people. It just wasn't just Sunday dinner. There was multiple nights of the week. And I believe, you know, doing what I do is like keeping her, her chef life alive. I mean, it's very interesting listening to my, like my older cousin's or my great aunt that's 90 now that was like, hey, if your grandmother was still here, she would be behind. She'd be holding your chef coat. She would be in every nook and cranny you travel the country <laughs> and cook. She would be beside you. And that just means a lot. Yeah. You said it was fun. What, what was so fun about those days being in the kitchen with your grandma? What was really fun was like the, the vessel, the food was a vessel to bring people together and that it would make, they would bring smiles on people's faces my grandfather's from Barbados, so like he would play calypso music. They would dance. If she played Latino music, she they, he would dance salsa. It was like always this very fun or like energetic moment in the house. And I think a lot of immigrant families have those moments, right? Of like food is the moment of truth. It's the one thing that we all can hold on to. Nobody can take away. You could really you could really see that in in my grandparents' household. And 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 when the table would be set. There'd be a lot of laughter. There'd be a lot of arguing. There'd be some tears. You know, that's just what happens. Just happens around the table. But then you would do it all over again the next day. And yeah, I watch cartoons, but I felt like the kitchen was just a better place. Like it, it just felt right. I don't know why. It's, it's one of the young, vivid memories I still have. There's not many other, mem you know, most of your memories as a kid is because your parents show you pictures and mm -hmm. you remember. That's how you remember. But I can remember that of, of, I can remember like getting dropped off in the mornings. I can remember going through the garage door. I can remember sitting on the green rug, right? Like those things are always in my mind. I can remember eating grapefruit with sugar on top. And my great aunt, like my grandmother gave me a grapefruit and like eat it. And then my grandmother, my great aunt, my great great aunt coming and pouring sugar on top of it for me. I'd be like, oh, it's better now. It's better now. <laughs> so, but who knew they were going to cultivate a chef, right? right? Like, you know, who knew that what they did would, uh, make me who I am. And I'm thankful for it. And, and those Sunday dinners, those vivid memories that you speak about, how do you bring that into what your culinary point of view is today? I think my point of view today is like a gathering space. Hmm. Every restaurant I've cooked in has always been a sense of gather, has always been a sense of expression, has always been a safe space for folks that might not be able to dine very freely without judgment. 
And that's how it was. That's how that's how it's always been in my family's house, regardless if it was around the food table or playing basketball outside or friends coming over. It didn't matter what you looked like or who you were. It was it was a safe space for all. And and then I bring the music, the music energy. Like I'm always making sure the music is right, that people are can sing along, that you can have this really memorable moment. And that's just important to me. So at what point did you decide? You know, you wanted to take this this thing that you enjoyed so much, these gatherings, the the cooking with your grandmother, and actually turn that into something you wanted to pursue as a career. I wanted to pursue cooking at a career at eight, seven, at eight. eight. <laughs> so you knew at eight yeah. that this is what you wanted to do. Yeah, I saw I saw a commercial for Culinary Institute of America at eight years old. I told my parents I was going to be a chef. Mm, they, my mom, my, my mom chuckled <laughs> and you know, my parents are, are, are the, the parents that will show up to every basketball game. Like that, that's the type of parents they are. But for me cooking, my mom was really like tough on, on this. Why are you going to cook? Like, this is a blue collar. <laughs> this is a blue collar industry. Like we worked really hard for you not to be a blue, to be working blue. Collar. Like I have a master's degree. Like I'm not putting you to go be working blue collar. <laughs> work. And, you know, it was a lot deeper than that, especially in the black culture, you know, people have been cooking their whole lives. And it was just something that I wanted to make sure I proved, try to prove my mom wrong. Like it could, it could be a career. They say on, look on TV, they say this is the greatest culinary school in America. And I was a dishwasher. I used to ride my bike to the country club. One of the only places I've ever was fired from when I was like 16, 17 years, 16 years old, because the chef threw food in was trying to take food out of the garbage can and I refused to let him serve it on the plate. Like old school stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like you see in the movies and I got fired, but it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pr- proud. I'm prideful for that fire, but I started to go home and tell my parents I was fired. And I've been move, cooking ever since. Went to culinary school, was very rough, was, was not the best person in my class. There's plenty of times I wanted to quit. My dad would not let me quit at all. He, and I, you know, I commend him. He was right. It worked out. And every moment was a new moment, right? Like, hey, come, you don't think I should go to culinary school? Come tour these culinary schools. Let's go look at Johnson & Wales. Let's look at Culinary School America. Let's look at New England Culinary. And of course, my mom went there. And the only thing I had to promise her was that I would get, I would get my bachelor's, right? That I wouldn't mm-hmm. just have an associate's because the bachelor's would help me. She said the bachelor's would help me out in my career. And sure enough, she was right. So you did get your bachelor's because I, I, I read something that you that you went like one semester and you're like, nah, I can't do this. Oh, yeah. So I graduated <laughs> culinary school. My associates, I get accepted to go to CN Hall, something I don't talk about a lot, I talk about here and there. And I was in CN Hall University for one semester. And I literally talked about food so much that people were <laughs> like, yo, bro, you're talking about food way too much. And 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 some of the people from CN Hall are some of my closest friends today. Like I would say that I paid the semester I paid for, I have some of the closest friends. I remember, uh, she'll get a chuckle on this. I remember being at the, in the lunch table, like in a calf in college uh-huh. in Senior Hall and looking at the food and being like, yo, what is this? <laughs> Coming from like culinary school where you're yeah. getting like everything. And at the table was like Notori, Notori who's, was in was in three LW who's on was on power right she, uh-huh. that's who she is now my friend Catherine Felice who's like head of marketing for Apple my buddy Marquise who's an agent and Natori being like yo you sound like a snob like 
what are you talking about? This is good lunch. I was like, no, I, I, I can't. I, I don't think this is a place for me. She was like, yeah, this is not the place for you. All you do is talk about food. There's other things to talk about, but food. And that was like a very turning moment for me. It was like, okay, maybe she is right. Maybe I am in the wrong place. Maybe I am around the wrong people. So then I took a year off, moved back home, took a year off and worked at a place called Sky Top Lodge in the Poconos. And then I went back for my bachelor's. And actually that year off probably defined a lot who I was because I really got to cook food, really understood what hustling was about. I used to work in the main kitchen in the lodge kitchen. I used to run across the, the golf course to get to the other restaurant to cook in the nighttime. The chefs there really took me under their wing. Chef Steven taught me how to do inventory. I nearly almost cut my finger off. Oh, wow. uh, my first day. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like real, real moments. But those moments, I feel like define who you are, those hard moments. And you should be able to like put that in, you know, put that in the tool belt and say, okay, I learned these things from here. And what can I do? And then when I went for my bachelor's, I looked at the food industry a lot different. When professors were really talking to me, I was really understanding what they were talking about. Another, I guess, defining moment probably for you was when you went to Ghana and you spent a month cooking there, studying West African cuisine and and really exploring the country, its markets, its culture. What were you hoping to discover during that time? And what did you actually discover during that time? I'm I'm a big risk guy. If you know me, like I'll I'll put it all on black. And Alexander Smalls reached out to me after being on Rocco's dinner party, really didn't know who he was, didn't, didn't know his impact on the industry. And he said, hey, do you want to go to Ghana? And I had a job offer from the Tao Group to be a sous chef wow. at, Laurent, at Laurent Steakhouse at that time. And I literally said, I, I literally said to my parents, my parents like, yo, I'm going to go to Ghana. And my mom's like, you're going to where? <laughs> who are you going with? And I was like, oh, I'm going with this guy, Alexander. She was like, and who is he? Do you know him? <laughs> like you're now, you don't need to go there, right? And these are the moments where I try to tell people, like the yellow brick road moment, like where it splits, mm-hmm. and you can go down this road, and this is who you could be, or you can go down this road, and this is who you can be. And there's a lot of moments in your life, and you got to figure out which ones are the, the, the moment that you're going to take for risk. And without the trip to Ghana, I probably wouldn't be who I am today. I, 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 and I just went there to cook American themed dinners at this beautiful hotel called Villa Monticello. And I learned about who I was. I learned I was a kid of the African diaspora. I learned that there was so much more to food than Eurocentric cooking. I learned that this food was a lot of me. There was so much remembrance of flavor. And, you know, there was a couple of friends. My wife now, I was just dating her at the time. She used to go to Ghana a lot to do missionary work. She's a nurse. So she would go there and she was like, yo, you're going to find yourself. Like, you got to go to slave castles. You got to do this. And I never got a chance to go to slave castles because of traffic. But I found myself through food. And every moment I touched food there from the first time I had peri-peri prawns and when I had suya after the nightclub to getting pulled over by the cops and them giving me a snack. Like there was all these what? moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was like all these moments of of around food that I felt was like very planned. First time I had Japanese whiskey was in was in Ghana at a sushi restaurant. Um, so there was all these moments that I felt like God had a plan for me. And it was exposing me to something that nobody else in the culinary world was exposed to. Mm-hmm. And then I would I would come back and be able to express it on food at the Cecil. And when I, you know, when, when I developed that menu. A lot of it comes from who I was, you know, I didn't, I I wasn't, today kids are raised a lot different, right? 
or a lot of us want to know who we are, where we come from. So we look at ancestry.com, do these DNA tests, right? But when I when we when when I grew up, I'm sure the same thing with you, right? You weren't your parents weren't like if they told you you were Italian American <laughs> or you were Irish American, that was it. Yep. <laughs> right. My my dad was very big on you. You're a black boy. Like, yes, you're Caribbean, you're Puerto Rican, you have all, but you're a black boy. When you step out the house, that's who you are. It wasn't like, hey, let's just, you know, let's do this DNA test and let's see where we, who you are and where you come from and what percentage you have. But food taught me that because food doesn't, food doesn't have a bias, right? Mm -hmm. And if you start to look at food and where it comes from, then you can, you get obsessed, right? You can get obsessed with it. And that's what happened with me. I got really obsessed with it. There was nowhere to do research on the food that I was looking into, you know, Afro-Asian American food, the food of the African diaspora. A big shout out to Dr. Jessica Harris. She had books on it, right? Mm -hmm. And I wish I would have known a lot earlier that my aunt and her knew each other for many years. Yes, like (laughs) blew my mind when I found this out, but I wish I would have known a lot earlier. Tells you to talk to your family because you just never know who they know. But my mom, this was like that mom teacher moment of like, hey, pick up an encyclopedia. And start to read encyclopedias and you want to learn about West Africa and food, the encyclopedia will start to push you in different directions. And that's what I did. And that's how I started to develop that menu. And that's when I realized who I was as a person. I I want to keep talking about that, but I do want to back up for a second because I need to know more about the story of you getting pulled over and the the police giving you a snack. <laughs> what what is that story? Oh yeah, so we're like going I'm going with the concierge to the nightclub and we he gets pulled over by the cops and I'm like, "Yo, what are we what is going on right now?" And he's like, "Don't say anything. Don't take out your passport. Don't do this." Like he's like freaking out. I'm thinking in my mind like He's like, he's going to get pulled over for like a DUI. Like in my mom thinking like all the American things. And it was just a checkpoint. It was like, hey, what's up, guys? What's going on? <laughs> You're rolling through this way. We're just doing checkpoints tonight. And and then the guy was like, we, this guy, he doesn't look like he's from here. You from here? And then I, and then my mom, I'm, I'm like, maybe I shouldn't talk. But I was like, hey, yeah, I'm just visiting. I'm staying here. I'm staying at this hotel. I did everything the person told me not to do, right. but it just didn't feel right to do anything else. And then they were like super cool. And they like threw me this like little bag of like, I, I want to say they were, what do they call? They're like similar like to like black, we call them black IPs, but there's another name for them. I, I can't think right now. They were like mm-hmm. fried, with like okay. spices on them. And I was like, oh, this is pretty good. <laughs> like, it's legit. And the, and the dude Kingsley just like shook his head and was like, oh, thank God. I was like, yo, what could happen? He was like, we're not going to talk about it. Let's just get to this club. Uh, yeah. So. No, it seems like, you know, stories like that and, and some of the other things you mentioned, it it was obviously a very impactful time in your life. How how much has that shaped just like your your culinary voice in terms of you mentioned the African and Asian cuisine kind of fusing together with your, you know, your style of cooking. How much do you attribute it to that time you spent there? I attribute it all to that time. And then, and then, and then after that, I started traveling the world a lot more, but yeah, that, that was like the door opening. That was like the ancestors calling me, giving me my marching orders. And then the rest, I was able to connect the dots. I started looking at food through the West African lens. When I traveled to Singapore next, and I would eat like chili crab. And I was like, oh, this is peri-peri sauce. <laughs> These are the same ingredients. 
oh, I, I see the impact, right? And then when you see the makeup of the people of Singapore, it's Malay, it's Chinese, it's Indian. Mm. And then you're like, oh, it's in Malay. Okay, who traveled this way? Oh, West Africans were, came this way, right? So you can start to see the direct correlation. Or, or when I was in Israel and I was on the four quarters and go through the Muslim side and you start eating the food and you're like, oh my goodness, this is West Africa. Mm. Or even a lot of Israel, you can see the West, you can see the lens of West Africa through the food. So I started to look at stuff a lot different. Or when I went to India, that's when I had a lot of more respect for food from Barbados because as a kid, I used to hate food from Barbados when we would go there in the summer times. Why? But then, well, it, it wasn't like the curries, uh-huh. the flying fish, the cuckoo, you know, the yellow. I mean, the only thing I used to like was like yellow pepper hot sauce. But I started to understand it. And then I was like, oh, this is this roti with the chick with the chickpea curry and rice is legit. Oh, this, <laughs> is, from in, this is the Indian influence. Like you can start to see the people because the food tells the stories. And that's all I try to do. I, I, I really just cook the food of the people or like the untold stories that, that a lot of tables, a lot of homes are unable to tell. A lot of things that people are not able to say, you know, there's a lot of food that haven't been on the table for a really long time. And a, and a lot of immigrant immigrant folks, his country or the world haven't been able to express it. And I think that, you know, when I look back at the Cecil, like we're in 2023, Cecil opened 213, that's 10 years ago. Mm. We see more food of the diaspora on the table anywhere than we've ever seen before, especially the food of the African diaspora. And uh, I always say without Dick Parsons and Alexander Smalls in that moment, you, you, you might have not seen that today. And all of these influences that you're talking about are really the foundation for Field Trip, which is your fast casual restaurant. After working in the more upscale restaurants, what about a, a casual establishment really excited you? Originally, Field Trip, the model was to try to be like a momofuku, mm. like noodle bars instead of noodle bars to be rice. My partner at the time, who, you know, was was helping on the operation side was like, yo, I don't I don't think anybody's gonna spend twenty five dollars for a rice bowl. <laughs> and I, you're gonna have to rethink this. And I didn't know about fast casual, right? Fast casual was you know, when I started working on this was like 2015. You know, sweet green, chopped, those guys were like making this new well, Chipotle was kind of like really coming into like this big play on the East Coast. You started seeing these high, these new spinoffs from it, Sweet Green and Chopped. And I was like, all right, let me see. Let me try to, let me try to build this out. And I, I kind of figured it out. But also what stopped me from doing like a full service spot at that time was I couldn't raise enough money. Hmm. So I only, I only was able to raise a certain amount of cash from friends and family and whatever I had. And the rest was like, okay, that's all I can build. So let's figure this out. Is work so far, knock on wood. But yeah, that was that that's how that's how I really got started. I I I opened it in a community that believed in me and a place where I feel like people appreciated rice, because I feel like a lot of people don't appreciate rice. And that's that. And you've said before, you know, that rice connects us all. And that was kind of a, a driving force behind this concept. Why why does rice connect us all? Well, we all grew up on it. Where are you from? I'm from Montana. Okay. Did you eat rice as a kid? Well, I mean, we were, this is like the eighties when a lot, you know, a lot of, a lot of boxed and canned things. So I, I feel like it was a lot of like boxed rice mixes, but that you know, you the, a, that means you had a mom that worked really hard yep, and single that mom. was like, I got no time to cook. <laughs> exactly. And the commercials telling me this rice could be made in 15 minutes. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's what happened with my mom. My mom, 
started making box rice. I hate box rice. If I could crack the code on like really good box rice. Ooh, I think you should like work if, on that. If I can crack the code on like beautiful box rice comes out perfectly for all the working class folks out there. Mm-hmm. So their kids can get really good rice. I, I That would be my next, that my next move. But that's my mom made box rice, right? And she mm-hmm. would buy, she would buy, you know, Latino blends of mm-hmm. rice because she still would want to make that rice, but had no time to make it. And me and my mom would argue, we argued about why, why I hated rice as a kid <laughs> because we would argue about this all the time, right? You have a vivid memory of rice. You're like box rice. That was your memory as a kid. It did something for you. Some other people might have that beautiful fr- fluff rice, but there's a rice dish or grain that you grew up on and that defines your culture. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to dive deep into a culture, you can eat a rice dish and that will tell you so much about what that culture is from. If it's bibimbap from Korea, if it's biryani from India, if it's a roast con condulas from Puerto Rico or Dominican Republic, right? If it's fried rice from China, it would mm-hmm. tell you what style of fried rice and the dialect of the person. So there's so many things that rice can do and break down. Why I'm obsessed with it. I think it's a beautiful ingredient. I think here in the United States, it has no respect. And that's because of just history and what occurred here. But yeah, I mean, rice is a beautiful thing and people have the moment of, of eating something that can define somebody's culture. And I, and I tell people all the time, you know, if you want to learn about, if you want to learn about a culture you don't know about, start eating rice from that country, start cooking those dishes, start doing those things. Because mo- a lot of my memories you're talking about as a kid, I was in the sixth grade. I went to Matthew Davis's house. He was Korean. And to this day, I still think his mom makes the best rice I've ever had. <laughs> I can remember it popping out of the rice cooker, which was yep. not a thing, right? In American households back then, popping out of a rice cooker or the pot, the steam, her hitting it with this vinegar and we eating this beautiful Korean rice. And, and when I see, when I run into him from time to time, he still lives in Pennsylvania. And I always make a joke like, yo, what's up? We got to pull up to your mom's house. <laughs> But that's what rice, that's what, that's what rice does for you, right? It was the same thing when I went to Ghana, right? Eating, eating jollof for the first time at a grandma's house or, you know, pineapple black fried rice in Singapore or biryani, the many different ways people cook biryani in India with the, with the crust on top, without the crust, in the large pot, in the hawker's market. I mean, these moments are very, are, are very defining moments. Or when you go to Dominican spot right here in New York and you get, you know, I get yellow rice or red beans, you know, Mm -hmm. those are, those are moments of, I think that define us all and rice is and rice is that connectivity that can help us all out. Yeah, I love that. I mean, now I love rice. Now I eat it like a few times a week and and I have the rice cooker and it's it's the best. The smell of it, you know, cooking and almost being done is like the best smell in the in the world. <laughs> JJ discusses what it's like to develop a cookbook and gives us a sneak peek into his sold out event at South Beach Wine and Food Festival called The Cookout. That's up next. Um, And you actually have a cookbook about rice as well. You have two cookbooks, The Simple Art of Rice and also Between Harlem and Heaven. What is your approach to developing a cookbook and, and sharing, you know, this passion that you have for food and these recipes with others. You know, I haven't talked about Simple Art of Rice yet because it comes out in September. Oh, okay. So, you know, that, that, that's that been a process I've been working on for three years. Uh, and I think it have an amazing impact 
on society to give people the tools to be able to cook rice in the best ways. You take time and effort. You want to make sure you have the right team around you. You want to recipe test. You want to get the, the proper photographer. And then you get to work. And the key is just finding people that believe in you a little bit more than you believe in yourself. Between New Harlem and Heaven was an amazing team. Veronica Chambers, you know, epic writer, has won so many different awards and written, for, written some great memoirs for Chef Eric Repair, Marcus Samuelson, right? All those books she wrote were New York Times bestsellers. I was the only one to bring her a James Beard Award. We, went, we all won a James Beard Award together, which was great. And even the photographer, right? The, the person who shot Between Harlem and Heaven was Beatrice Escada. And, you know, a person who is a Brazilian, you talk about the diaspora and the dishes really spoke to her and she was able to work with the right prop stylist, make sure it looked authentic, shoot it beautifully. And those things really matter. And then, you know, Will Squabbly is my editor for, was the editor before Between Harlem and Heaven and is the editor of Simple Art of Rice. And, you know, you, you couldn't ask for a better book editor than, than Will uh, he really understands food. He's been in the game. He keeps you honest. And those things all matter when you're, when you're building around it. And I think a lot of us, when we're young, we're just so hyped to get, to get something. Like, oh my gosh, my first restaurant, let's build it. Or this is my first book. And you never think about all the other things that might hurt you along the way. So building a really good team around yourself is really ideal. But yeah, we could jump back on and talk about the simple art of rice soon. Because I think that book might define me who I am in my career and really and really put the rice game back on the map. Well, we are certainly looking forward to that and also looking forward to uh, South Beach Wine and Food Festival, which is coming up. And as you are no stranger to cooking on TV or in front of large crowds, you have a pretty uh, exciting event coming up <laughs> called The Cookout, which is already sold out, by the way. Sounds like a blast. What can the people who were lucky enough to snag tickets expect in this one? So what you bring into the cookout? <laughs> well, I have not been invited to the cookout yet, but if I was, oh, that's a good question. If I was coming to the cookout, so my dad who passed a couple of years ago, he always had, it's like the simplest appetizer ever. It's just like jalapeno poppers with like cream cheese and wrapped in bacon and a little cilantro and lime, but they are like the, they're so simple. I love but it. They are the first thing gone at every single party. So I'd probably have to bring either my dad's poppers or my dad's baked beans. So, I love that. Yeah. So you're, you're invited to the cookout. Okay, you, know, you get it. You get it. <laughs> but that's really what it is. You know, the cookout is is something that's really in, ingrained in African-American culture, black culture. Right. It's just a gathering place that that's built around food and that you can have a fun, safe time. Um the cookout really started. Cookout is a newsletter publication that me and my co-creator Eric started to like highlight black food ways in many different lights. So we talk about food entrepreneurship, who's investing, you know, why the watermelon, you know, how the watermelon became a racist thing. We talk about everything and we realize like, well, let's try to figure out how to do it as an event. And I talked to Lee Schrager at Food and Wine Festival and said, hey, would, would you be into doing this? I would love to help bring more diversity to the festival, right? Uh, especially with Black women are growing in the food space. And uh, when you hear them, they say there's no events for them. And th this is what it's about. So we, the goal for me was to really bring in local Black businesses from Miami, local Black chefs, give them a chance on the stage. Some friends that, that will come. There'll be, there'll be music. 
and D Nice is, is co-hosting with me. So you, that's amazing. You can't like America's favorite DJ, right? So, and you'll you'll get everything from like what I bring to the cookout is potato salad, no raisins. Okay, that was going to be my next question. What are you bringing to the cookout? Yeah, but no raisins in the potato salad. No, I never understood that. <laughs> That's yeah. why you're invited to the cookout. Okay, 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 cool. And then I'm gonna do I'm gonna do some barbecue shrimp. So barbecue shrimp and, and potato salad. I'm gonna I've stole my mother in law's potato salad recipe. I've been watching mm. her in the kitchen. She's the most epic potato salad. So I'll try to recreate that. Uh, and then like Amaris is she's gonna bring her famous fried chicken from Chicken Jones. I think Timon, my buddy Timon's from his restaurant Fort Lauderdale. He's gonna bring some curry to the scene, like vegetable curry, mac and cheese house. He's doing like 10,000 mac and cheese. I got to see this. (laughs) But so, yeah, you know, you will get to see black culture at its best. You'll get to see it in many different lenses. And I think it's going to be epic. I mean, it's still, people are still inquiring. (laughs) You had to release more tickets, right? I had to release more tickets. And I think it could, I, I would love to see it become an event at New York City Food and Wine. Oh, yeah. And see it become an event, maybe a bigger event on the beach. Even like Warren G has called to potentially perform. Like, yo, what? man, I love that. It was crazy. I said, Warren, <laughs> we'll save you for next year. We'll save you for next year. <laughs> you had to turn Warren down. That's like, crazy. Like, Warren, like, you're going to come. He, he was like, he, 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 like, he's friends of, he's, a, he's one of my friend's dad's friend. <laughs> and my friend's dad talks about me so much and was talking to him about the cookout. And it just resonated with him. And he was like, yo, I got to come. I got to I got to show up to this. And I was like, no, Warren, we'll, let's save this for next year. Let's do it. Let's do it right. You come with the crew, Snoop, everybody. <laughs> OK, I definitely am coming to that cookout for sure. <laughs> that sounds epic. No, it sounds so, yeah. like it's going to be a great time. I can't wait to see the photos and videos and all that. But it, no, I've, that's always been on the list of mine to, to head down there. I always love the the one in New York, as you mentioned. But I've heard the, the South Beach one is a, a totally different vibe. So no, it sounds very, like a very different vibe. lot of fun. Anybody bringing collard greens to the cookout because you have a really great video on oh. Food Network, which by the way, was also nominated for a James Beard Award. So anybody bringing the greens to the cookout? I got to check. I got to check who's bringing the greens to the cookout. I'm sure they'll be there Yeah, in some type of form. I'm not bringing them this time, but I will bring them <laughs> next time. And that video is epic. Like many people don't know, we shot that video in the pandemic. Mm. It was Big shout out to the Food Network team on that. We went to my restaurant. Everybody was like masked up. One camera person, everybody on Zoom. And we shot this phenomenal, everything you need to know about collard greens. I got nominated for a James Beard Award, which, you know, I was hoping to win because the story behind it and the team just worked really hard on it. It it wasn't just about me. And another, I think the, I think the collard green has worked harder than kale, which it needed to get some respect. Yeah. Why um, doesn't it get more respect? I'm a, you know, the collard green is the true American green. Mm-hmm. Like it's not something that like grew in Ghana and came over to America. Like this is the true green of America, but I'm not sure, you know, at one point people didn't want it. People didn't want to eat it. Right. It was, it was, it was, it was a leftover green, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're slaves. We're eating it. And I, you know, think things in America have so much stereotype, which is unfair because it just grew and people were just cooking. And, but I love the collard green. You can get it at field trip. It's in our wok vegetables. The collard green at field trip is like the McDonald's French fry people. If I took it out, I think they would go crazy. on me. <laughs> is that popular? huh? Yeah, it's very popular. 
All right. Well, if you have not seen it, check it out. It's, you know, like you said, everything from choosing the greens to cleaning them, storing them, pickling the stems, a lot of good stuff in there. We are running a little bit, little bit short on time. I would love to keep talking to you. Uh, this has been fantastic, but we are going to finish things off with a little rapid fire round. And then we have one final question for you that we ask everybody here on Food Network Obsessed. So rapid fire round, favorite food spot in Harlem, aside from your own. Favorite food spot in Harlem? Ooh, so hard. <laughs> Harlem is so big. I know it's rapid fire. Melba's. Okay. Melba's. Melba's. Melba's is great. Your life mantra. So my, it's on my arm. It's passion plus drive equals success. Uh, do you believe in luck? Yeah, if you hit the lotto. <laughs> love to do that. Is there a Food Network chef you would love to cook with that you haven't already? Oh, Wow. Is Ina? Is Ina original Food Network chef? Yeah, you could say yeah, Ina for sure. Ina. Yeah, Queen. Yeah, Ina. Queen Ina. 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 <laughs> what gets you out of bed every day? My kids. Well, let me stop lying. <laughs> my dog. Yeah. <laughs> pets. Pets get you out of bed first. How do you take your coffee? I don't drink it. Okay. Tea or nothing? Nope. Just a glass of water. All right. Dream travel destination. Wow. I'm going to say dream travel destination is going to probably be for my 40th. I'm probably going to do Greece or oh, Italy. Nice. So, but dream travel, that's so hard for me. I want to go to so many places in the world. <laughs> They're all on the list, right? They're all on it. All right. So final question is not rapid fire. You can take as long as you want on this one. We are wondering what would be on the menu for your perfect food day. So breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. There are no rules. You can time travel, spend as much money as you want, you know, regular travel around the world in one day, whatever you want to do to to kind of fill out that perfect food day. All right. Perfect food day is breakfast with my kids in the morning. It's oatmeal and cereal mm. and some bagels with peanut butter on it. Perfect lunch would be field trip anywhere in the world. You said I can. You said I can think yeah. in the future. So field trip, field trip anywhere in the world. Okay. And what are you? What are you eating at your well, field what trip? What am I eating at field trip? I'm probably eating the shrimp bowl, which is coconut sticky rice, shrimp, uptown curry with the wok vegetables, side of plantains, and a dragon fruit lemonade. Yum. And I'm sure my team is there with me. Odali, Kara, Lisa. We're all we're all, we're all eating together. And then dinner. Oh, shit, dinner's hard. <laughs> There's definitely a snack in there. Yeah, you can I, throw. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. You can throw snacks in too. There's definitely a snack in there after lunch because I I, I don't stop eating. So <laughs> so what are you having for snack? Definitely snack in there. What's the, um, what's the go to snack? Go to snack. It really depends on where I am, but we'll just say there's a snack. I don't know what it okay. is. There is a snack. There's a snack, and then dinner would be with my wife. It would definitely be Italian food because she loves Italian food. We would definitely be eating pasta. We'd probably be in like a a dope spot in a in, in a corner restaurant in Florence, drinking table wine, laughing, and just enjoying life. Ah, well, that sounds like a perfect day and a perfect dinner and an end to that perfect food day. Thank you so much for taking the time. I loved getting to chat with you and look forward to much more from you coming in the near future. No, I appreciate it. It was a blast. I'll see you at the cookout. Yes. Bring your dad's jalapeno <laughs> poppers. I will. <laughs> and the beans. And I'll let you know who makes the collard greens at this year's cookout. Perfect. Thanks a lot for having me. Such 
such a pleasure chatting with JJ and I need to make my way to field trip for one of those rice bowls ASAP. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. Friday.